Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at verses 13 through 23 in the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. By God's grace, we'll finish chapter 2 today. This section of Matthew's Gospel has to be certainly one of the most difficult sections of his Gospel, perhaps even one of the most difficult sections of the entire New Testament. Today is not a day for sleepy eyes and dull ears. Today is a day we are going to have to really engage seriously with the Word of God that we might understand what has been written here for our benefit. This section, verses 13 through 23, Matthew narrates three events in the life of Christ in his very, very early years. Three events. And it's interesting because at at the end of each event, he pauses to insert a statement that the, that, that particular event fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And in the first two, he quotes a specific reference into the Old Testament. In the third, he has a more general statement. The problem with that, I mean, we're used to seeing statements all over the New Testament, of course, that say such and such fulfilled what the prophet said. The problem here is that it's not readily apparent to us when we think about it, when we go back and read the context of the original Old Testament statement. It's not easily apparent to us in what sense does this event fulfill that which was previously written. Now, maybe some haven't bothered to think that through, and that's okay. I'll think it through with you this morning. For others of you, I know that you have been puzzled by this, even frustrated by it at a certain level. And I know that because you've tried to pin me down through the years to give you some kind of an answer. Well, this morning, by the grace of God, I am now prepared to give you an answer. And I trust that when we're done, that you will find here something that will be satisfactory, satisfying to your brain and that will be engaging to your heart. Recently, I was reading a blog written by Dr. Michael Vlock. He is a professor over at the Master's Seminary. And as I was looking through entries on his blog, he was dealing through an extended series of entries on the blog with what's called the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Now, that sounds like an exceedingly dry and academic topic, fit only for junior seminarians. But the reality of the matter is that it's, that it's really quite a very large question. And it's a question that, that is important to be wrestled with, even for non-seminarians. And the reason it's important is because how we understand the New Testament use of the Old Testament has a direct impact on various significant issues of theology. Things such as our understanding of the kingdom of God. Our understanding of who are the people of God. Our understanding of the law of God. Indeed, our understanding of the very covenants of Scripture are all built upon our understanding of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. So it's not merely a dry and academic topic, although it is certainly an academic topic that has stretched the, the intellects of some of the best and brightest through the years. Now, I agree, none of these issues, the kingdom of God, the people of God, the law of God, the covenants of God are directly impact whether a person can come to a saving understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are not salvation issues in that very narrow sense, to be sure. But that doesn't make them unimportant. Our theology, our understanding of God is, is not to be boiled down to what is the irreducible minimum. In fact, just yesterday I was driving along and I was 
kind of thinking about this sermon and it's been on my mind a lot this week. And I was driving, driving along and I was thinking to myself, okay, so if I did want to boil it all down, if someone pushed me to boil down the gospel, what is the gospel? What are its essential saving components? Could I do that? Well, fortunately, the light changed, and, and it was a time to turn into my street, and I had other things I needed to do, and so I never really did finish <laughs> thinking about that. So it's still swirling around back out there to perhaps be taken out on another drive and, and thought about some more. But I think we need to be very careful of reductionist theology, trying to figure out is what minimum must a person understand and believe in order to become a Christian? Because the New Testament never really attacks the issue in that way. The New Testament never presents it as, a, as like a driving test. How many correct answers do I need to get in order to get my license? How many can I get wrong? It's never presented like that. It is presented as a wholehearted faith commitment upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work upon Calvary's cross and his resurrection to the right hand of the Father, his bodily return to establish his kingdom. These are significant issues. The issues of the New Testament use of the Old, to be sure. Maybe this is an obvious statement for you. But the New Testament presupposes and depends upon the Old Testament. I don't know if you ever thought about that. The New Testament presupposes the Old Testament. The New Testament is dependent upon the Old Testament. It is not that the Old Testament is a Jewish book written for Jewish people. The New Testament is a Christian book written for Christian people with some sort of separation between the two. And yet, unfortunately, although I don't believe any of us would really articulate that, we live as if we think that's true. We focus in the New Testament and pay scant scant attention to the Old Testament. Our understanding of the Old Testament is shallow and weak. Dr. Vlock lists a few statistics on his blog. I thought I'd share them with you. They illustrate how important the Old Testament is to a proper understanding of the New Testament. Let me just give you a few, and I I believe they're here on the screen or will be shortly. First, he writes, the New Testament has 224 direct citations from the Old Testament introduced by a definite formula indicating that the New Testament writer purposed to quote the Old Testament. So, for example, in your text before you, it says that, verse 15, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. That is a direct citation of the Old Testament, and there is a formula, a definite formula, indicating the linkage. 224 times in the New Testament that happens. Secondly, Dr. Vlock notes that the the references to the Old Testament in the New Testament account for 352 verses. So the 352 of the verses of the entire New Testament are direct quotations from the Old Testament. That's roughly 4.4% of the entire New Testament. He goes on to note, one verse in 22.5 verses of the New Testament is a quotation of the Old Testament. One verse in every 22. Finally, and this one's kind of interesting, I think. He says, when the allusions are taken into consideration, more than 10% of the New Testament is made up of citations or direct allusions to the Old Testament. More than 10% of the New Testament is drawn directly out of the Old Testament, either through quotation, direct citation, or through obvious allusion to something that has gone on before. So they're very much tied together. And you know, it has to be that way. Were they not tied together, Christianity would be false. It would be false. Paul labors in Romans, his most comprehensive 
presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he labors to demonstrate the the tie to the Old Testament because if he cannot do that, then Paul's message becomes false prophecy. It is wrong. They must comport one with another. One must spring out of the other. And indeed they do. Now our problem... For most of us is that, generally speaking, we're pretty poor students of the Old Testament. We are, generally speaking, pretty poor students of the Old Testament. If I were to ask people to raise their hands, and I will not, so don't worry, of how many of you have ever read the Old Testament in its entirety, I know there would be many hands that could not go up. That's just a sad reality. If I were to say, how many of you have read through the entire Old Testament in the last year, put your hands up, many more hands would go down. We just, we're not oriented that way. When we are honest, we will admit we frequently find the Old Testament rather boring, rather confusing. Rather spiritually unappealing. And I know that's true because when we, when we talk about reading through the Bible in a year, and we talk about that a lot around here, and we attempt to encourage you as a, as a body to join with us in doing that year in and year out, many fall off the wagon. They go so far and they are overwhelmed by the Old Testament, which is a mystery to them, which is, is dry, it's boring, it's spiritually unappealing, and gradually what happens is it just falls beside the way. And they don't finish. That was not true of the writers of the New Testament. Do you understand that? Those who wrote the New Testament were predominantly Jewish men. Steeped in the Old Testament. They found the Old Testament to be rich and riveting. So this morning, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew was a Jew. Matthew was a Jew. Steeped in the Old Testament. He is demonstrating that Jesus is the long-anticipated Jewish Messiah, the King of Israel and Savior of the world. And in order to do that, he must demonstrate that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And so he very self-consciously sets about to do that. And that's what he has for us here. We cannot understand the Matthew chapter 2, certainly this part of Matthew chapter 2, without at least wrestling a little with what is he doing. Otherwise, it becomes just a story from Sunday school. Just the facts, ma'am. So here we are this morning. Matthew 2, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. In this, we will examine three events. Three events and evidences. Three events and evidences from Jesus' childhood which prove he is Messiah. And that's Matthew's intent, to prove he is Messiah. The events do not prove it. It is how the events fulfill Old Testament prophecy that prove it. And that's what Matthew sets about to to show us. So here we are, three events. We'll look at them rather quickly. They are quite familiar, I'm sure, to most of us, if not all of us. The first of the three events is what I'm calling retreat. Very simple, it's retreat. Verses 13 through 15. Follow along in your Bible. Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he arose. And he took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Retreat. Here's what's going on. After the Magi have been led by the star, which a few weeks ago I told you I think is the Shekinah glory of God, they have been led to the very house where the child is. They fall down before him, prostrate to worship him. They present to him their gifts. Matthew tells us, verse 12, chapter 2, that they are then warned by God in a dream not to return back to Herod, but to go to their country through a different route. Don't go back to Herod. Don't go tell him where the child is. The Magi are obedient to this vision, this dream. It's likely and in the very same night that an angel of the Lord, verse 13, appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he instructed Joseph to flee to Egypt, to retreat, to run away. Joseph did so, it says, verse 14, under the cover of darkness. You see that? It says, by night, by night. Egypt has long been the place of refuge for the nation of Israel. Throughout her history, it was the place to which the Jewish people would retreat in time of conflict. Repeatedly, in the Old Testament, that's what happens. Back to Egypt. We're told that by A.D. 40, there were approximately one million Jews living in Egypt. There was a very significant Jewish population residing in Egypt as a result of the various conflicts through the years. Big Jewish community. Joseph is to flee to Egypt because it is the closest place of refuge. It is the historical place where one would go in time of trouble. But beyond that, Egypt lies outside of the political dominion of Herod. Herod has no authority in Egypt. It is a Roman province at this time. So if you want to get away from Herod, it's like fleeing from state to state. You need to cross state lines. You need to leave the country even to get away. So that's what they do. It was about 75 miles from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt. Now, likely, they didn't just cross over the border. They would have gone deeper into the land, far enough into the land of Egypt in order to evade the spies and the soldiers of the king. How far they went, we do not know. But they retreated into Egypt. It's commonly assumed, I think it's probably correct, that the financial resources that allowed this young family to make this middle-of-the-night escape and then live in Egypt for a, for a short time, and chronologically it was probably only a matter of a few months, but in any case, was likely the gifts given to them by the Magi. Gold, we easily purchase food and lodging. The spices, frankincense and myrrh, whose weight was equal to that of gold, they're worth their weight in gold, would be converted to spice traders along spice routes into gold or supplies, and the young family could survive. So they retreated into Egypt, likely for only a few months. Second event, rage. The second event is Rage, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. Very enraged. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then... 
That which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, quote, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Rage. Likely it didn't take more than a day or two before Herod figured out that the Magi were not coming back. Even under the best of circumstances, assuming they delayed a day, by the second day, Herod's got it figured out. These guys are not coming back. At that point, he blows a gasket. He is consumed by insane and violent rage. His plot, his plan that he has hatched, has, has exploded before him. And now, the, the pretender, not pretender, but the, the, the threat to his throne is alive and well. And he must do something about it. And so he implements a, a hasty, murderous plot. He dispatches his Soldiers to Bethlehem. It's only five miles away. It wouldn't take long for the soldiers to swoop down on this unsuspecting village. It systematically go from home to home. It says Bethlehem and its environs, so it would include the village proper and then the outlying areas. Home to home, the soldiers would go systematically ripping children from their mother's arms, examining them to determine whether they were male or female, if they were male, slaughtering them on the spot. Matthew tells us the victims of his rage were all male children two and under, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. Now, it's not likely that the child was two years old, the Christ child was two years old. It's likely he was much younger than that. Herod would have wanted some kind of a buffer, some kind of an insurance policy to make sure that he got the child. So two years old is a nice round number. Kill all the male children two years old and under. Make sure you kill this one born king of the Jews. Now, Bethlehem was a small village. It was a small village. Most estimates that I read put the, the number of children killed at around a dozen. Around a dozen. Maybe two dozen at the most. Most commentators think about a dozen. That, by the way, would explain why secular historians have no record of this account. Josephus, the Jewish historian who records many of Herod's wicked deeds, passes right over this. If it's true, there were only about a dozen, and what a horrendous, wicked crime this was. But, but in terms of the hierarchy of the brutality of Herod, this one doesn't make the press. Rage. Third, return. Return, verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, pay attention, get this. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Stop there. Likely after only a matter of a few months in exile in Egypt, Joseph receives another unexpected angelic visitation. The text indicates that. Behold, verse 19, unexpected. The message this time is that Herod is dead, Herod the Great has now died. He died in March of 4 B.C. He is dead. And that Joseph is now to take his his wife and son, and he is to move back into the land of Israel. He is to come back into the promised land. 
Jewish historian Josephus reports on Herod's death. Somebody asked me that last week. How did he die? Well, Josephus has a rather long and detailed account of the death of Herod the Great. It is gruesome and painful. In capsule form, his body was infested with maggots, and he was racked by constant pain until he died. Upon his death, his kingdom was divided among his three remaining sons. He had one son executed five days before his death. Only three made it to the funeral. He had a will, which he had changed a number of times along the way because he had to write people out of it as they stopped breathing. (laughs) His will had to be confirmed by Caesar Augustus because Herod the Great was was a client king. That is, that he he served at the pleasure of Rome. He was king of the Jews, a title confirmed upon him by the Roman Senate. But he must, brutal and, and dictatorial as he was, he still existed at the pleasure of Rome. And so his will had to be confirmed by the emperor, Caesar Augustus. He couldn't just merely will his kingdom as he wished. So his will was confirmed. The kingdom was divided among his three sons. One of his sons was named Archelaus. Herod the Great named him king of the Jews. He wanted to pass that title on along with the land of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, which is the land, the ancient land of Edom in the south. Remember, Herod was an Edomite, descendant of Esau. Well, Caesar Augustus didn't, he gave the land, the, the rule to, to Archelaus, but he would not confer the title of king upon him. So he's not a king. F.F. F. Bruce in his New Testament history writes this about Archelaus. Quote, Archelaus had all his father's defects of character, but uh, with but little of his administrative and diplomatic ability. All of his father's defects and essentially none of his redeeming characteristics. Remember, I told you last time, Herod was brutal, but Herod was brilliant. Archelaus was brutal and stupid. Which makes for a really bad combination. The rule of Archelaus was so oppressive that he was deposed by Caesar Augustus in A.D. 6 and sent into exile where he died. At that time, Judea was reduced to the status of a Roman province governed by a prefect or a governor appointed directly by the emperor. We encounter one Pontius Pilate who served from 26 to 36 A.D. as a governor of Judea. That's how, when the narrative now turns to the adult life of Jesus, you have Pontius Pilate. How did you go from Herod the Great to Pontius Pilate? Well, I just told you. You insert Archelaus in between. Verse 22. But when he, that is Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod... He was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee. And he came and he resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Evidently what happened is upon re-entering the promised land, Joseph hears that Archelaus is now ruling in Jerusalem. Aware of the, of the character flaws in this man, and warned by God, Joseph realizes there's no way I can go back home. We cannot go back to Bethlehem. We have to go somewhere else. God warns them in the dream here, it says, and and so he departs north to the regions of Galilee, the end of verse 22. Travel north to the town called Nazareth. 
That was the town where they originally had departed from, according to Luke's gospel. So they've made a full circuit and have now returned back to the place where Mary and Joseph were when the birth narrative of Luke encounters them. Nazareth was an obscure village in Gentile-infested Galilee. It is the northern part of the land, and it it has been settled by lots of Gentiles. Located about 55 miles north of Jerusalem, 50 miles west of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, the town contains a Roman garrison. And those who who grow up and live in this town are considered rough and crude. It's not the place you want to be. You remember Nathaniel? In John's Gospel? Nathaniel, residents of Cana, which is a few miles away from Nazareth, he says, when Philip comes to him and says, I found the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth, and, and Nathaniel says, can I good, any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel is not just insulting the town. Nathaniel is, is actually, it's a statement of incredulity. He cannot believe that it's possible for anything good to come out of that place, let alone a Messiah. I tried to think of a town around here that I could use as an illustration. and Yeah, that was just going nowhere really fast. So I will spare you the insult. But you have to understand, it was a place with a reputation. This is definitely not the place you want to, to list. As, where were you born? Not Nazareth. Three events, retreat, rage, return. Now the evidence. Now the evidence. Three lines of evidence here from Matthew. Don't ever forget this. Mark this down, write it on your hand, stick it in your brain. Bible writers write with a purpose. They have a story to tell, a point to get across. They include things and exclude things for a reason. Matthew organizes his gospel account, and this takes us back a couple of months, around certain themes for certain purposes. I'm not saying, now listen carefully to me, they are not making things up. That's not what I said. Although some of the liberals will tell you that. They are arranging things. They are including actual historical events or conversations or passing over other actual historical events or conversations because they either do or do not fit with the purpose for which they are writing. By the way, this should not surprise us. You can read the fattest biography you can find. And it's not exhaustive. It it selectively includes incidents and and speeches and writings and so forth from whatever figure you're talking about. Matthew is demonstrating he is writing for believing Jews to provide for them an apologetic for how can it be that Jesus is the long-predicted Messiah And yet his kingdom is not here. So Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus is the long-predicted Messiah, but his kingdom has been delayed, and it has been delayed or postponed because of the unbelief of his people. And during this delay and postponement time, the kingdom, his entrance into, has been thrown open to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus all in accordance with what the Old Testament said. So he selectively chooses what to include and what not to include. That's why you read Luke's account and you don't don't have anything about the trip to Egypt. You read Luke's birth narrative and and Jesus is in the temple, right? And and Mary is offering her purification sacrifice and, and then it vaults ahead and he's 12 years old. 
didn't fit what Luke was trying to communicate. It wasn't necessary to tell you that. For Matthew, it's essential that you hear this. Two writers, two purposes. Now, nowhere is it more obvious that Matthew is selecting and arranging his biographical material to, to put forth his point than it is right here in this part of Luke, or excuse me, of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is showing us that by divine intent, the events in the life of Jesus and the events in the history of the nation of Israel correspond to one another. Now, I want you to get a hold of that. I'll come back to it again and again. By divine intent. Notice the number of times it's an angel in a dream or God himself in a dream. This is not random. This is God sovereignly directing the life of the Messiah. It is by divine intent that the, that the events in the life of Jesus here and the events in the history of the nation of Israel, that they correspond to one another. What do I mean by that? Look back in chapter 1, verse 21. This is the angelic announcement. And she, that is Mary, will bear a son. And you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Why? For it is he who will save his people from their sins. His people. In context, there is only one possible way Joseph could have understood that statement. Jesus will save Israel from her sins. He is identified with his people. This allows Jesus to stand in for the nation. To become their corporate head. To recapitulate key events from the history of the people of Israel in his own life. And where they fail, he will succeed. The nation fails. The corporate head of the nation succeeds. And in his success, he is able to save his people from their sins. He is that closely identified with them. Unless you think I'm making this up, by the way, and we won't turn there. You can go to Isaiah 49 and you can read that chapter and think about it. You have the servant of the Lord. Sometimes it's Messiah, sometimes it's Israel. It's used interchangeably in that chapter. They are identified with each other. I'll read you a quote from, from a friend of mine. His name is Leif Jensen. It's a good quote, so I've included it. Leif, you're now famous. <laughs> Where is he? Is he over there? This is part of your worldwide ministry now, Leif. This is what Leif wrote. Quote, God sovereignly moves Jesus through the circumstances of life to follow in the footsteps of his rebellious child Israel in order to be his, that is Israel's, redeemer. Let me read that to you again. I think it's, it's up there. It's not up there. I'll just read it to you. God sovereignly moves Jesus. Get it? God is behind this, right? The dreams. God sovereignly moves Jesus through the circumstances of life to follow in the footsteps of his rebellious child Israel in order to be Israel's redeemer. Jesus must go through certain events that, it, that, the, that God's child Israel went through. Israel failed, Messiah succeeds. He recapitulates the history of the nation. And Matthew is very intent upon us understanding that. For example, 
Israel is baptized in the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2, Paul says exactly that. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. Chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus is baptized. Why did Matthew include this? Israel is tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. Exodus through Numbers details that. Throughout their temptation, they fail. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, for how long? 40 days. Israel fails in the wilderness. Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. Back to the baptism for a moment. Israel is baptized and immediately falls away. Jesus is baptized and and we hear from heaven, the heavenly voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well pleased. Israel goes to Mount Sinai to receive the law, Exodus 19 and following. Jesus goes up upon the mountain to authoritatively explain the law, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Matthew is very, very careful in what he includes in his narrative to bring out this divine correspondence. In fact, that's exactly what Dr. Vlock calls this principle. He calls it the principle of divine correspondence. The principle of divine correspondence. I am now convinced that it is the key to unlocking the first two of the three fulfillment statements here in Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23. What I will do is quickly sketch out how that works. And I will leave it to you to go back and dig out the rest of the details if you'd like. The first line of evidence is what I call sonship. Back to chapter 2 and verse 15. Out of Egypt did I call my son, or I have called my son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. This Old Testament citation is drawn from the prophet Hosea. It was written about 700 years before Christ. It was also written 700 years after the Exodus. That's where Hosea fits. It is a reference in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 to the historical exodus of the nation from Egypt. An event that was 700 years in the past when Hosea writes it. Out of Egypt I have called my son. It is a statement of historical fact. A statement of historical fact. So the obvious question is, so, so how can Jesus return to Egypt and then departure again, verse 15. How can that be a fulfillment of a historical event that occurred 1,400 years earlier? In what sense can Matthew say, the prophet has been fulfilled who said historically out of Egypt, I called my son? What kind of fulfillment is that? The answer is divine correspondence. Divine correspondence between Israel and her corporate head. Let me sketch it for you really quick. Just note the comparisons. Just as the people of Israel left Egypt, so too Jesus leaves Egypt. Just as Israel is called by God, so too Jesus is called by God. Just as Israel was called God's son, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, so too Jesus is called God's son. Just as Israel needed deliverance from bondage under a leader, so too Israel again needs deliverance from bondage under the greater leader, Messiah. There are these points of correspondence. Jesus fleshes it out. He is the greater son. Sonship. 
It is in that sense that Jesus fulfills the statement of Hosea. He relives it. Relives it. Second line of evidence. Sorrow amidst hope. Sorrow amidst hope. Verse 18. 17, 18. Then, the slaughter of the children, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Verse 18 is a quote of Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. Now, when I say Jeremiah 31, you say the new covenant. I say the new covenant, you say Jeremiah 31. Good, now we're getting somewhere. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. The new covenant. This chapter of Jeremiah's prophecy expresses the greatest hope for the nation of Israel at the very time when their life is most difficult. It is the promise of the new covenant. It is the promise of great and better days to come. It's a very positive, upbeat, hope-inspiring chapter. Except for verse 15. It's like verse 15 of Jeremiah 31. It's just kind of plump there. It's about sorrow in the midst of this tremendous time of rejoicing and, and anticipation and hope of what God will do. It interrupts the message of hope in the chapter. And it does so by referring to a really interesting thing. It, it refers to the old women of Israel who are, who are figuratively known here as Rachel. Right? Favorite, favorite wife, Jacob. The old women of, of, of Israel. Who when they are gathered at, at Ramah, historically gathered there at Ramah, to watch the deportation of the young men of the kingdom. The young men of Judah. I mean, Jeremiah is written in the time of the Babylonian conquest, right? You know that, yes? Even if you don't know it, say yes, because you know it now. It's written in the time of the Babylonian conquest. So when the nation has been shattered, the house of David appears to have been shattered. And so what happened is, is Ramah, which is located just a little bit north of Jerusalem, was a, was a place where the captives were gathered together before their deportation to Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. It was, a, it was a gathering point. It was a concentration camp. And those that had not been slaughtered in the Babylonian conquest were now gathered together, except for the old men, the weak, the frail, and the old women. They were left in the land. But whatever vitality, whatever strength was left of the people that had not been killed in the siege were, were gathered there in a concentration camp and then in a chain gang, figuratively speaking, they were deported to Babylon. And so the old women gathered there to watch this happen as the strength and the vitality and the hope of the nation is deported. The rod, the scepter of the house of David is shattered. See, in Jeremiah's day, there's, there's great hope being promised of a deliverer to come. And it's, and it's this new covenant, hope. Remember, he says, that this, is, this new covenant is not like the old covenant I made with your fathers when I brought them out of Egypt, the covenant which they did not keep. Because this covenant, the law, will no longer be on tablets of stone. It will be written on the heart by the Spirit of God who will provide the ability to keep the commandments. Great hope. I mean, being, the nation has been shattered because of their refusal and inability to keep the law. And now the promise is the new covenant comes in which it's indwelling. And yet, in the middle of this great hope, there is this 
tremendous sorrow of foreign oppression. The great hope is punctuated by this verse 15 of foreign oppression. The young men, the strength, the vitality of the nation is being taken away. And they sob. And they refuse. The old women refuse to be consoled and comforted. Through Jesus, the nation has been promised deliverance. Isn't that true? Great hope of deliverance. He will save his people from their sins. Verse 21, chapter 1 again. And in the middle of this tremendous hope that Messiah is finally here, it is punctuated by the sorrow of a foreign oppressor. Herod. In his brutal reign, where he slaughters the young men of Bethlehem. Just like Israel experienced sorrow in the midst of hope, so too in the life of Messiah, there will be sorrow in the midst of hope. It is in that sense that the, prophet is, the prophecy is fulfilled. Third, third line of evidence, contempt. You guys aren't going anywhere, are you? I really don't want to break this in the middle. I'll try to go fast. Contempt. Here, this is verse 23. That what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. What? Matthew's employing a different, a different mechanism now. The other one was, was divine correspondence. This one's a little bit different. This is what Dr. Vlock calls the principle of Old Testament summation. Now, there's nothing inspired about that title, but it kind of works. Old Testament summation. Matthew is doing something different here. And essentially, what that means is that on certain occasions, the New Testament writers will, will appeal to a general truth that is found in the Old Testament without specifically locating it in any one particular Old Testament passage. It's just something that is, that is known by understanding the Old Testament. So they sum it up without specifically giving you a citation. The principle of Old Testament summation. That what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. Now there is no specific Old Testament text that says Jesus will be called a Nazarene. There just isn't doesn't say that in the Old Testament anywhere specifically. But there are a great many Old Testament texts that speak of the Messiah as being despised and lonely, lowly and, and treated with contempt. For example, Isaiah chapter 53. For example, Psalm 22. So Jesus now residing in contemptible Nazareth fulfills the picture of Messiah's humble estate. That's what Matthew's driving at. Now the clue, I think, to really seals this is notice that it says spoken through the prophets, plural, not through the prophet. All the other ones, 122, 25, 2.15, 2.17, it's a prophet because you can go and find a prophet specific prophetic statement. Here, there is no specific prophetic statement that says he will be called a Nazarene. But, but he doesn't say that one prophet said it. What he says is the prophets, plural, S, plural, right? They said it. They said it. That is, they presented Messiah as being contemptible in the eyes of the nation. And you'll remember what I just told you about Nazareth. It's in that sense that he will be called a Nazarene. One who comes from this contemptible place. All right. We need to tie a, we need to tie a bow around this thing. Let me try to do that for you somewhat quickly. I'm calling this implications. Implications. So here I am. I'm working on this sermon all week long. And I'm busting my brain on this thing. I'm just, wow. I'm really thinking hard about this. How does this work? 
And I, and I come to where I'm persuaded by what I've just laid out for you here. And then I think to myself, this is not going to convince anybody. We're Westerners. We, we will not find this evidence very persuasive. We find Micah 5.2 in chapter 2, verse 6, we find that a lot more persuasive, right? Specific verbal prophecy with specific easily identified fulfillment, right? Where will he be born? He'll be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. Boom, we like that. That one works for us. These, let's be candid with each other. These, we're going, yeah, okay, that's interesting, but uh, that's not too persuasive for me. I mean, is that the best you got? Matthew, are you kidding me? You're going to demonstrate Jesus as Messiah and you're going to do it like this? Then it hit me. Wow, it hit me. It's like a ton of bricks it hit me. This was the thought that hit me. It doesn't matter whether I think this is persuasive. God thinks this is persuasive. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Matthew wrote this down. Do you understand that? And what the Scripture reading earlier from 2 Peter 1, right? No prophecy of God was given by a matter of personal interpretation. That means it didn't just come out from, from the person. It was the Spirit of God who moved them to write what they wrote. God caused Matthew to write this down and to give these three lines of evidence. God thinks this is compelling. So who am I to say, God, is that the best you got? Give me some other evidence. It doesn't live up for me. Doesn't work for me. Doesn't convince me. Now start to unpack that thought. I mean, it brings us face to face with a with a really important question. The question is, how do we think about our Bible? How do we think about our Bible? How do we approach our Bible? Do we approach it from what I'm calling an anthropocentric point of view, meaning that, that it's, it's from a man's point of view, or do we approach it from a theocentric point of view, meaning God's point of view? In other words, if a passage of Scripture is confusing, if a passage of Scripture is unappealing, if a passage of Scripture is dry or boring, whose fault is it? I told you, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I started to think about this, the implications of this. Oh, I, Pastor, I, I don't, can't read the Old Testament. It's so boring. Yeah, you're right. God, he, he's really not a very good writer. He could take a few lessons from that lady who wrote that whole series about the, whatever his name was. The witch kid. What was his name? <laughs> Potter. Yeah. Harry Potter. Harry Potter, the witch kid. Yeah. Right? Because she knows how to write. I mean, it's compelling. page turner. But God, he could use some lessons in writing. Wow. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. When Paul wrote that, he's referring primarily to the Old Testament. I mean, do we believe that? Do we really believe that? If we do, it, it has to affect how we come to the Scriptures. It has to. I mean, it, it, has, to, it has to change our attitude when we come to the Word of God. It, it has to change our effort when we come to the Word of God. 
It has to change our approach when we come to the Word of God. Are you ready? This is where I go from preaching to meddling. Get ready. Devotions. Bible devotions. One person described as reading the Bible without understanding what it means. Do you have your devotions this morning? What did you read? Can't remember. What did it mean? Don't know. But I have my devotions. Hey, I raised four kids. The rule in our house was no Bible, no breakfast. It was a simple rule. You don't get your Bible reading done, you don't eat. I don't apologize to that. My kids read through the Bible every year from the time they were first able to read. I think it's a good thing to do. I think it's an important thing to do. But to read without comprehension, there's no virtue in that. This is not a magic book. It's not just osmosis. It's, it's, it's the word of the living God. Listen to me. If we come to the Bible and treat it as if it's a spiritual cup of coffee to jumpstart us for the day, you know, let me just find a nugget, just something. Just give me a caffeine jolt for my body and a, and a spiritual jolt for my soul and get me going. If that is our approach to the Word of God, then regardless of what we say about 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, as to in terms of what we believe it means, by our practice, we reveal our true attitude. Does that mean you have to go to seminary to understand the Bible? Of course not. No. Do you know that we live in a day and age when, when there are more resources readily available than at any time in the history of mankind to understand the Word of God? Do you have to be able to read it in Greek and Hebrew to understand it? Of course not. But must you give yourself to it? Yes, you must. You must. It is, the, it is the oracles of the living God. Remember those Bereans? Acts chapter 17, you remember them? Paul gets run out of Thessalonica. They, they're not so happy with that message. Three Sabbaths and he's out of there. He goes down to Berea and it says the Bereans were more noble-minded because they were examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. What things? Paul's preaching that Jesus was Messiah. So, you mean like, maybe Paul used argumentation like, out of Egypt I called my son? Yeah, I do. I do. And they examined the word of God to know whether it was true. Beloved, may God grant us grace to seriously come in and, and commit to the word of God. It will change you. It will change you. Simon, I know you had another song prepared. My friend, where are you hiding? Yeah, yeah for the sake of um, those that are in child care, I'm, I'm going to pray and let us go. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. And, and Lord... Uh, Lord, my heart is really convicted on these matters. Just how easy it is to come to your scriptures and be flippant about it. To just approach them and look for a little devotional thought, a little quick fix. Or even to read large sections and without really understanding anything that we're reading. Just to say we've done it. Oh, Lord, deliver us from such foolishness. Let us emulate the Bereans. 
Let us search the word of God to see if these things might be so. Let us humble our heart before the living God who has revealed himself to us through his written word. And let us grow as students of that word. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.